By the time he was four, the little boy began to notice that he could see less of the world. Had he not been born into a working-class African-American family or lived in the rural panhandle of Florida, the child might have had his condition diagnosed and treated. However, Jim Crow segregation and poverty prevented that. By 1937, the seven-year-old, now living and attending classes at the Florida School for the Deaf and Blind in St. Augustine, went from low vision to a complete loss of sight, eventually having one eye surgically removed. As he understood when he was a man, the cause of this vision loss was glaucoma, a progressive but treatable disease that destroys the eye when the pressure of accumulated fluid crushes that organ's delicate and complex structure. But the boy's life was not tragic or sad. Later, Ray Charles credited his mother, Aretha Williams Robinson, with his determination to live a full life as a blind person. You lost your sight, not your mind, he remembers her telling him. That clarity also gave him the strength to overcome an institutional education intended to prepare disabled black children for a life of menial, repetitive work. Over the seven years he spent at the school, Charles learned to put brooms together, a profit-making enterprise that helped to support the school, one that white children were not required to perform. But he also learned to read Braille, pages of small bumps that translated into language, but also into sheet music. Encouraged by a music teacher at the school, Charles trained as a classical pianist, playing with one hand while reading and memorizing the score with the other, and then reversing that process to memorize the part for the other hand. In retrospect, although Charles defaulted to this technique because he lacked vision, it's also hard to imagine any activity that could be better for a maturing brain. But Charles's life, often seen as a triumph over blindness, illustrates a larger point. Blindness was part of who he was as a person and may have been part of his musical genius. It also illustrates that many people who become legally blind have lived part of their lives as sighted and retain some vision. For example, Charles, who burst onto the national scene as a teenager in 1949 when he charted at number two with Confession Blues, was sighted and partially sighted for a significant chunk of his life. Even when his vision loss was complete, Charles's mind was still imprinted with colors, objects, and people, and throughout his life he continued to gather sensory data that allowed him to experience the world visually. In 1972, Charles sat down with television talk show host Dick Cavett, who asked whether, were it possible, the now iconic musician would want his sight restored. Uh, well, let's put it this way. Uh, if you were if you were to say to me, look, I can wave a wand and, and you can see you can see right now, um, and and it's got to be a forever thing. I I might turn it down. Uh, if you were to say to me, well, I can wave it and you can see for maybe a day, I might accept that. Only because there 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 are a couple of things that maybe I would like to see once, you know, or, you know, just so that I really would know for what's really happening really? that I haven't seen. Yeah, because, you know, I, as I said, you know, that I've seen the stars and the moon and the sun and, and I remember my mother and, and uh, so I, I think basically I, I would probably like to see, uh, uh, you know, j just, just for once because I see them anyway all the time, like, you know, like my kids, for instance, you know, yeah. just for, you know, just to physically see them. But actually, uh, I, I'm not all that hung up about 
start seeing things because I do everything I want to do. I go everywhere I want to go. And, 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 and with some of the news I hear about today, you know, I mean, there's some things I just absolutely don't want to see, man. I really, I, and I feel sorry for you guys who have to put up with it, you know. <laughs> In retrospect, Cavett's approach to the subject of blindness is often as tasteless as the still common phrase that describes futility, the blind leading the blind. For example, riffing off of Charles's abilities as a musician, as if they were improbable for a blind person, Cavett asked the artist about other things he could do. Could Charles land his private plane in an emergency? Charles responded that he actually thought he knew enough about flying that he could. Or could he perform an appendectomy? Although Charles had no medical training, there are, in fact, blind surgeons who do the delicate work of dissection through a refined sense of touch. Later, when Charles said that he had been watching The Cavett Show for years, the host jumped on the word watched. Charles graciously explained that he saw everything sighted people did because every piece of information entering his mind triggered his visual imagination. As journalist Andrew Leland explains in The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight, Despite the fact that sighted people equate blindness with darkness, it's rarely experienced as a black veil draped over the world. Only around 15% of blind people have no light perception whatsoever. Most of the 7.5 million Americans counted as visually disabled in a 2016 survey see something, Leland writes, even if it isn't very useful by sighted standards. A blurry view of their periphery with nothing in the middle. Or the inverse the world seen through a buttonhole. For some, scenes come through in a dim haze. For others, light produces a shower of excruciatingly bright needles. Even those with no light perception at all have little use for the popular image of blindness as darkness. The brain cut off from visual stimulus can still produce washes of brilliant color and shape. Andrew knows these things, not just because he's a journalist and has done extensive research on the history and politics of blindness, but also because he has been losing his own vision since he was in his teens. I'll let him tell you about that. But this is what I can tell you. During our conversation, I learned a lot about my own failure to understand the complexity of all the conditions that fit under the rubric of blindness. Not the least of those limitations was that reading a book, even an excellent book like The Country of the Blind, doesn't make a person smart about what it means for someone else to live a life with low or no vision. Here's what I know now. I've been walking around with a head full of cliches, assumptions, and stereotypes for decades. Even though I am close to a person with a progressive eye disease, reading Leland's book and engaging in conversation with him only began the process of exposing what I needed to unlearn. Which may be why, as Andrew discusses in our interview, visually disabled people increasingly turn to institutions and support networks that are created, designed, and implemented by other blind people. Join Andrew and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, Professor of History Emeritus at the New School for Social Research, a contributing editor at Public Seminar, and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is episode 42, why the blind should lead the blind.
Andrew Leland, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So, Andrew, your wonderful book, The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight, is also a political history of blindness. You tell the story of how you became blind. Can you tell our listeners that story? I have retinitis pigmentosa, or RP, and it's a degenerative retinal condition that works its way from the outside in. So it's really progressive tunnel vision, but that generally speaking progresses very, very slowly over the course of decades. And because it is the rod cells in the retina that are dying first, there's also associated night blindness. So usually people first notice it when they're teenagers, as I did, you know, going to the movies or going on a night hike and just thinking, why is this so much more difficult for me? And then over the years, and this is very much my experience, there's just this gradual narrowing of the visual field. So at a certain point, I decided to stop driving at night just because my night blindness had become more pronounced. And then in my early 30s, I decided to stop driving during the day. And that was because at a four-way stop, for example, I just found it kind of beguiling and I realized it was increasingly unsafe. And there's just this series of milestones that I've hit. I'm 42 now. You know, a, a couple of years after I stopped driving, I decided even riding my bike like on a bike path didn't feel safe. And the big milestone and the big turning point, and perhaps the moment that I became blind, you know, which is still an ambiguous question for me, you know, because I do still have usable vision. And so it feels in the face of society's intensely binary conception of blindness kind of complicated to call myself blind, even though I, I think. I'm increasingly comfortable using that word. But the cane, the white cane, is the the real turning point into that world because it's a social induction into blindness. Because, you know, I can tell people, oh, I don't drive. I can tell people, yeah, like I had to stop biking. But I don't have to tell people anything when I just walk down Main Street with my white cane. It's instantly this marker that sets me into this category. But then, and also it's it, it's been, it, it's painful because there's this ambiguity and people see me look at my phone or, you know, see that the light has changed if they're really looking at me that closely. And, you know, I have had people say like, oh, you're not really blind. You know, why, what, what are you doing? Yeah. So, so that's, that's the general arc of my vision loss, you know, and, and right now I'm in the place where I have a few degrees of central vision still that I can use to recognize people and see street signs. And, um, but at the same time, I'm really having to focus on learning blindness skills, which which I detail in the book, using a screen reader on my phone or my computer so that it reads all the text aloud, you know, really not just using a white cane, but learning how to navigate with non-visual techniques. So that's, that's sort of where I'm at now. And you really describe in the book this dual process of becoming blind, of losing vision, but also becoming a blind person who does things the way blind people do. Mm-hmm. So it's this question of both becoming and learning Mm. how to assume and be comfortable with that identity. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the things the book really did for me is separate that process from the business of finding resources, learning skills, Mm. but also inhabiting this new body that Mm. has a history and a politics attached to it. Yeah, I mean, I I think one revelation I had is that there is an intentionality to becoming blind. 
And I think that is a really difficult idea for people to understand because I think not only do we think of things in a binary, so like you're blind when you've lost vision or, you know, to think about legal blindness, you know, you're blind when you cross this threshold of whether you're, you know, your visual acuity is degraded to the point where you can't, with corrected vision in your best eye, you know, you can't read that giant E at the top of the eye chart. Or, you know, in my case, legal blindness is um, the visual field is near, is below 20 degrees. But so much of my experience of becoming blind is is internal. And it's not about sort of my doctor's measurements of my visual field or, you know, my ability to comfortably read print. It's I had to make the decision when it was unsafe to drive. And I had to make the decision when I it was important to use the white cane. And even beyond those kind of metrics, you know, there's a sense of my own identity. And, you know, I think I think this is a, a reality of, of identity more broadly. I think we do think of like gender, for example, as like, well, you're born with one gender and that determines your gender, right? But people have really deconstructed that idea and said, actually, it, it is a far more, you have far more agency over that question. And I discovered that disability is, a, is similarly complicated in that way. And that, of course, like you can become paralyzed or you can become deaf or you can become blind. And there's a very physical embodied aspect of that. But at the same time, like what kind of deaf person you are or, you know, uh, what kind of paraplegic you are or what kind of blind person you are really is a choice and is a practice and has a profound impact on how you inhabit and embody that disability or that identity. We tend to think of blindness as something that someone is born with or someone becomes blind through an accident and there's this shift, this transition that is very abrupt that the person must get used to, but not as something that you live with, Mm. this question of, of going blind. And I wonder if you could describe to our listeners what has it been like for you to lose your sight over a period of decades. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the wonderful parts about writing the book was getting the opportunity to interview dozens and dozens of blind people. And, and particularly, you know, people who, as you say, were born blind or went blind in an accident, but also people in my position who, over the course of decades, very gradually lost their sight or continuing to lose their sight. And nothing gave me as strong of a sense of the of the fallacy of blindness as a binary than those conversations and, and, and the way that those conversations illuminated my own experience of gradual vision loss. And what I mean by that is I talk to so many people who say, you know, at a certain point, I still had vision, but the energy that it took and the kind of obsessive, overwhelming, sort of just like cognitive load of like minutely tracking each little loss at a certain point, like it's not doing you any favors and you just sort of have to say, and this is like, I have a friend who I write about in the book, Will Butler, who, you know, gives me a little bit of tough love. And he's like, you know, Andrew, you might be going blind for a really long time and you might be more blind or less blind, but at a certain point you might just want to say that you're blind. And when he first said that to me, I kind of recoiled and I was like, you know, what, what does that even mean? And why are you saying that to me? And are you like being competitive? But a couple of years later, I am a wholeheartedly endorse that idea because the obsession over tracking the decline and the sort of imposter syndrome of saying like, well, I'm not as blind as that person or that person is really blind, like all this sort of hierarchy of sight, all that stuff, I think, is only going to set you back. And the thing that I find really empowering and 
useful is to try to understand what being blind means now in a way that can accommodate me losing the remaining six degrees or just having three degrees, you know, and I think that that kind of minute policing that other people do, but also that I do to myself distracts me from like a political consciousness about blindness and also just a practical consciousness about like, what are the skills I'm going to need now and going forward and kind of leave behind that obsessive, really like almost solipsistic. I mean, I understand it, but it is a sort of like, you know, it's a little bit like organizing your, uh, your toy collection, you know, at the expense of the rest of your life. And there's also this question of the fact that you have an eye disease that there is no treatment for. And as Americans, terrible as our health system is, we are used to going to the doctor and having them say, hey, here's a treatment I want you to try. Here's a pill. That's never been the case for you. Mm -hmm. And that means you have to live with a kind of anxiety of self-diagnosis in between doctor's visits. Mm. And what is that like to have so much of the monitoring of one's incurable disease (laughs) left to yourself? Yeah. My relationship with medicine is complicated, as I think it is for every person with a disability. And I know lots of people with RP who are very invested in cure and you know raising money and going to webinars from the foundation fighting blindness and you know getting chummy with research ophthalmologists and more power to them i find it increasingly like the more blind i get and the longer i kind of spend in the space and the more research i do i find it really destabilizing and and kind of counterproductive in the way I, i was just talking about you know in terms of that because it really does put the focus on clinging to sight and hoping for sight hoping for a cure And for me, if my doctor called me today and said, hey, guess what? Good news. Like, you're going to get a couple injections and be good. Like, of course, um, I'll be celebrating and I'll take it. But in the meantime, when, you know, for the last 25 years, that has not happened. The energy, the money, the thought should go into how to be a blind reader, how to be a blind traveler, how to be a blind journalist, um, how to be a blind father. You know, like to me, that feels like where I want my energy to go. So let's let's talk about how to be a blind journalist. So much of your life has been organized around books, around writing, around things many of us who are sighted take for granted that we just do. Mm-hmm. You know, we worry more about finding the time to do them mm-hmm. than whether we can do them. Mm-hmm. How did you adjust to the idea that things that were so core to you needed to change? The one side effect of the very gradual vision loss experience is that it really does invite denial. And I think that's true of folks who lose their vision more quickly, too. I mean, I think there is an aspect of denial where you think, I'm going to make do with the little vision I have. Or, you know, even if there's no vision, you know, sort of, I don't want to use the white cane because it stigmatizes me, even if it means like, mayhem and um, or just a a radical reduction in one's mobility and so I think every blind person has this turning point Uh, I mean ideally I mean it's a tragedy if they don't but I think every blind person needs to have this turning point of realizing like okay this is happening or has happened like this is real and I have to now problem solve and a, a, a really wonderful blind artist named Emily Gassio I was interviewing her about her work and you know and she said to me when I think about blindness, I think about problem solving. And there's a lot of, of writing and thinking about 
disabled people as the original life hackers. I think it was Liz Jackson who said that. And it's so true. And, you know, and, and I think when you can kind of reframe your attitude about it, it does become this question of like, okay, yes, print is no longer viable, but like, what else is out there? And how can I, you know, figure out a solution to this problem? And lo and behold, there is a lot of incredible technology, you know, a lot of it driven by people with disabilities for exactly this reason, trying to find a a solution to this problem. And then, you know, as I write about in the book, actually, like mainstream technologies often emerge from that kind of, I mean, that's really like the definition of innovation, right? It's like there is some sort of constraint, there is some problem, there's limited resources, and then you find a solution. And it often is far more interesting and powerful than the alternative. So I did manage to find a really sincere excitement in that kind of hacking, you know, and thinking like, who are the cool blind people who have figured this out and who did it before me and kind of, um, so, so a lot of the book, you know, the energy that I spent into researching it, you know, this book was really fun to write because there was not really ever that much of a dutiful sense of like, well, I really ought to cover the history of Braille because that's an important uh, uh, issue to cover if I'm talking about blindness. I mean, it was much more like, I'm a reader. I need to figure out what the tools are out there. Braille is huge. Like, let's let's poke around in there and figure out what's there for me or what the alternatives are. And, and so, yeah, that's I, I really just dove headfirst into that world. So tell us about your decision to learn Braille, because most people, I think, would stick to the idea of technology now. You know, someone else can read to me. I've got an AI that will take care of this. But you decided that Braille was something important. Before the 18th century, there were no schools for the blind. There were educated blind people who had parents of means who would hire tutors. You know, and there's these there's these sort of very isolated blind figures in history. Nicholas Saunderson, who uh, held the Lucasian chair in mathematics at Cambridge, the immediately following Isaac Newton, who learned to read print. You know, feeling the tombstones uh, as a kid in the, in the graveyard near his home, and you know, so there are there are these educated blind people, but. On the whole, like civilization writ large didn't see a way to or even a, a reason to educate blind people. And then that changes in the 18th century. The first known school is uh, is in, in Paris, you know, and it's part of this enlightenment turn to educating women and lower classes. And there's this sort of broader sense that like an educated populace is of value to, to civilization. And blind people and deaf people get included in that. And right away the question becomes like, okay, so if we're educating blind people, you know, how do they have access to print? To, that's, this is the, the container of knowledge, right? At the, increasingly at the time. And there's a wonderful story about the guy who started uh, this first school for the blind. His name was Valentin Aoui. And he had an assistant, Francoise Lesseur, who was also one of the first students at this emerging school. And, and Aoui also worked as a, a translator for the king and would get these sort of you know, wonderfully embossed invitations. And, and, and Lesur picked one up off of his desk and felt it. And he, he sort of said to Howie, like, you know, I can, I can sort of make this out, you know, kind of like Saunderson with the, with the tombstones. And, and this was a revelation and led to Howie's development of a raised print system. So you basically imagine a 18th century French book and imagine that, you know, I wave a wand over it and then the, the, the letters rise up off of it and you can feel it. But as it happens, this is an incredibly inefficient way to read. You know, just 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 imagine passing your finger over a capital C, for example, and like being able to tell if that's an O or a C. You know, you're kind of going back and forth, and, and you know, how are you reading an entire book that way? People did do it, but it's it's very slow. 
but but it was actually preferred by the sighted teachers of the blind because it was legible to them. There was a retired French military officer named Charles Barbier who was very interested, you know, as sort of in the spirit of the time, interested in like these universal ideas and and he was interested in universal reading systems and one that interest brought him to thinking about tactile reading for the blind. And so he developed a code. You know, if you if you've seen a, a braille cell it's um, six raised dots in a grid. You know, but before Braille, uh, Barbier's system, it was a much larger cell. It didn't have any of the orthography, like there was no capital letters. And in fact, he tried to make it so that it was the sound of French rather than the actual like one-to-one correspondence to print. He presents it to the School for the Blind. One of the, you know, they think the second generation of students there is, is Louis Braille. He, and he sees the system and thinks, I can improve on this. And so he makes it so that it's actually, you know, there are capitals there. It's, it's every French letter in print becomes a French letter in Braille. And he's a musician, so he also u- uses the same system to create a way to read music. And this is a watershed moment in the history of blindness and blind access to, to, to print because, you know, really for the first time in history, there's like a very efficient way for blind people to read. And f- even more important, I think, in some respects for blind people to write because using a, a very simple tool called a slate and stylus, which essentially allows you to emboss um, the dots onto the page yourself, blind people can write independently. And you know that those are the tools you need to, to gain a, a real education. And so, yeah, it was, a, it was a turning point. Just to give you a little more recent history, in the 1960s, we, we see the first closed circuit television magnifiers, which you basically imagine a giant scream and you can put a book under it and it's sort of in real time, the same way a closed circuit TV, you know, you're seeing the, the bank vault from a little TV screen, you're committing surveillance, but just on the book on the table in front of you. And it allows you to take a regular size print book and, and you know, crank it up to 100 point font and then also control the, the contrast, which is really important for a lot of people, too. And then also you start to get the first screen readers. So you can, you know, listen to synthetic speech, uh, you know, the first flatbed scanners. So, you know, this is the first time that you're seeing machines like the Kurzweil reading machine, where really for the first time you could just grab any book off a shelf, put it into this washing machine size machine, and then a very Soviet sounding robot will, you know, maybe a minute or two later read it aloud. But nowadays, you know, my iPhone can do that instantaneously in a much more, you know, a voice that might even fool you into being a human narrator. But as this technology in the 60s and 70s and 80s becomes uh, first feasible and then cheaper, teachers of the blind start to say, like, Braille is really hard. Braille is weird. We don't understand it. You know, same, back to that same that same issue in the 18th century where teachers are saying, like, this is a weird, strange code, foreign code. Like, wouldn't, you, wouldn't it be better to do what everybody else is doing? You know, and, and so students stopped being taught Braille uh, as uh, automatically as they were through the early 20th century. It's so hard as an adult. There's a lot of that that neuroplasticity that lets a kid just pick up German uh, without thinking about it, you know, just from spending six months in Germany. You know, it's the same thing with Braille. Like, there's something that happens cognitively where where you're reading part of your brain really just maps onto the, the code. Whereas when I'm learning in my 40s, it's not like that. It's a slog. However, I love reading aloud, and Braille is the par excellence way to read aloud, whether I'm doing radio or reading to kids. And... Cognitively, again, you know, there is something about tactile reading that I've just, that I've found that is sort of widely attested that it's it's closer to the visual experience of reading in terms of like you can read silently, but also there's a real apprehension of the 
shape of a sentence and the shape of a text that you can get orally, but that I find there's something much more immediate and kind of direct about the, the Braille reading experience. So I'm sticking with it, even though it is a pain. Yeah. And you talk a little bit in the book about how Braille allows the kind of interiority and imagination that we all love, those of us who love to read, about reading, and that someone reading to you is entirely different. Um, It certainly requires different ways of paying attention. But I also want to remind our listeners that it isn't a opposition between Braille and technology, that Braille is a technology, and it's an early reading technology. Indeed. And nowadays, it's just as digital. There is digital Braille. Um, There are these devices called um, Braille note takers or Braille displays, where you can, with a Bluetooth connection, pair the Braille display to your laptop or to your phone. And then this is incredibly important for deafblind people, but also a lot of hearing blind people use it. So the same way that a screen reader will read everything on the screen aloud, or I can, you know, I can, I can open my Kindle app, do the the, the read all gesture in, in the screen reader, and then I'm just re- hearing it as a basically synthetic audiobook. But if you do that with the Braille display attached, then I can read a book on my Kindle app in Braille. Any book in the Kindle store can be instantly converted to Braille, as opposed to the past where you had to pay a Braille transcriber, you know, or find the seven volumes of, you know, a short book, because Braille is much bulkier than print. So Harry Potter is like 10 volumes or something because it's so big. There are all of these resources that can kick in for people who are blind, but often they don't kick in until you are blind. And I actually remember first blind people I knew back in the 1980s, 1990s were men with AIDS Mm. who would lose their sight to an infection Mm. that, that came along with AIDS. And so I spent an awful lot of time at the Lighthouse for the Blind, Mm. which had all kinds of things. There was a radio that read the New York Times. Uh But those resources were really not available to men whose sight was diminishing, Mm. even though they knew they would lose their sight. Mm. So why do we think that is? That's such an interesting question. I mean, I think if you're talking about the legal, federal, political, bureaucratic answer, it's that, you know, you're... If I'm looking at our budget, you know, if I'm a government employee and I'm looking at my budget, if you if you expand it to just like people who may be losing their vision, suddenly you have to pay for a tremendous number of people. So, I mean, I think that's one clear answer. But I think there's a, a more psychological aspect to it, which is that, you know, I talked about denial. And I think that one part of denial is that people who are who are losing their vision feel denial. And and I think it can be insidious and subtle. And, you know, I felt it for a long time, like holding, you know, I bought a cane. And then the first time I brought it out, I'm like, this is just ridiculous. Like, what am I even doing with this thing? I can see. I don't know why I bought this, you know. And then it took those close calls to, you know, kicking you know, hip checking a, a toddler or like kicking a dog by accident. Be like, you know what? OK, fine. I'll use it. Even if you know you're going blind, it's hard to adopt these things that have such stigma before they're absolutely necessary before you have enough of those close calls. And there's tragic stories about people who wait too long, right? And then the other thing that I think is important and even less well-known or less considered is the denial of the people around someone who's losing their vision. So I've heard story after story of parents who their kid is low vision. Let's, you know, like me, or, you know, low vision is a, is a useful term, I think, for someone who um, has some vision but is could be included in the world of blindness. 
Uh, I like it better than visually impaired, just as an aside, because visually impaired, it's totally legit. People call themselves that. But for me, like, it feels a little euphemistic. It's like on the road towards like actually heinous terms like handicapable or, you know, like I've heard really sad stories of parents who say, you know, okay, my child is low vision, but they can still use the magnification. They can still read the same books the other kids are reading, the same editions. So why would they learn Braille? Braille is like the white cane. It's like this weird, sad, blind thing. And like, my kid's not blind. Like they watch Peppa the Pig on on the screen. So like, why would they read Braille? The, the tragedy is that then they don't learn Braille. So then it's, the, and then it's not till they're like 17, then they, they lose that vision or suddenly reading print. You know, it's also a matter of efficiency, right? Like they might be able to see the screen, but how efficient is it to read their college textbook, like one highway size letter at a time? And so how much better off would they have been had they, in that crucial window, gotten Braille? And so I think there's there's a lot of this halo effect of people around you saying, you don't need that. Why are you doing that? And it's well-meaning and it's a, people are trying to protect the blind person, but the effect is often directly contrary. At a certain point, you decide to go to the National Foundation for the Blinds sort of boarding school yeah, yeah. for people learning to navigate the world. As, yeah. And there are no sighted people there, which yeah, yeah. was kind of a relief, right? Oh, yeah. It was an incredible experience. So the National Federation of the Blind is the one of the two main, they call themselves blind consumer organizations. I mean, they, they have lobbyists. They're self-described militant. Um, it's the organized blind movement. You know, it, like like the center I went to, you know, the, the NFB has uh, majority blind people on their board, the, you know, the leadership, uh, the rank and file members. It's sort of built, modeled on organized labor. And, and they're, they have, they, you know, they have a reputation for being strident and kind of very, well, I guess militant is the word for it, uh, for better or worse. Um, and, and, and there's a lot of sort of, one of the things that people tell me they're most surprised about reading this book is the really intense divisions between and among blind people uh, and, and particularly among blind organizations and sort of blind people who are politically active. You know, I think there's a sort of common sense attitude that like, wouldn't all blind people want to be kind of aligned? And like, you're already this tiny coalition, like, you probably should try to get aligned. And, and the, real, the reality is that these grievances run very deep. And so the NFB looms large in the American blind and also internationally. I mean, they have a reputation around the world uh, for getting things done and being incredibly effective, but also being a little strident is the one that keeps coming up to my mind. I imagine you have examples in your mind of similar political movements, activists who have similar kind of like internecine breakdowns going on. The NFB makes a very forceful distinction here. We are not the National Federation for the Blind which is historically what every organization is. They're an organization for the blind, American Foundation for the Blind. They, we are of the blind. And so they really push back against, you know, from the beginning of the New Deal when you're having these state and then federal, you know, commissions that are dedicated to training blind people. What they found is that the, the, the training that blind people were getting from these both charities and also um, state and federal programs was incredibly custodialist and saying, you know, okay, so you can work in the sheltered workshop making, you know, subminimum wages to tie straw into brooms or restock vending machines later, you know, but what you want to be a lawyer, like, 
uh, I don't really know how you would do that. Um, let's stick to the vending machines. And, you know, not really fostering independence. You know, certainly talking the talk of fostering independence, but, you know, these blind folks from the NFB looked at the system and said, this is not working. This is why there's a 70% unemployment rate for blind people, which is still the figure. Um, and so, anyway, they, 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 they founded their own training centers, which is the one I went to in Colorado, the Colorado Center for the Blind, one of their three centers. And you're required to wear totally vision occluding sleep shades from eight to four every day. You know, you're staying in these apartments and then you go to this former YMCA. And yeah, there's uh, maybe maybe there's like three sighted employees. But other than that, it's like 60 blind people teaching each other how to live. And it's it was a it was a transformative experience for me. And blind people of very different ages, life stations, education, and and so on. So it's it's a whole little world. Oh, yeah. Really. What did it feel like to have that world and then have to leave it? Hmm. Yeah. This is an experience I've had a handful of times in reporting the book and, and since is, is entering a blind space, which is to say a space where there's more blind people than sighted people and the, and the blind people are in control and there's nobody guiding them there's nobody mind you know worrying over them opening the stove you know they're it's blind people living normal lives and in charge and for somebody like me who has felt quite alone in the experience you know it has been you know really residing in sighted spaces for a while there's something really liberating about it and then to return it does there is a feeling of like oh okay right this is what the world is actually like you know, in, in the Colorado Center, everything is accessible, right? There's no, like, fighting for accessibility. It's just, like, everything is audio or Braille, and, you know, people announce themselves, or if if you get lost, nobody is, like, rushing to you and saying, oh, you're, you're actually walking towards the trash can. I think you want the door. You know, people let you bang around with your cane on the trash can for a while until you're, like... And because, and because it's a, a school, you know, there's people who have just showed up who've only been blind for six weeks, and they're going to... You know, they might spend a week every day saying like, OK, it's time for Braille class and then walking right into those trash cans and nobody is grabbing them by the elbow and pulling them away. And if you want to know how to teach a blind person to be able to get off a plane in Sydney, Australia, having never been there with no plan and find their way to their hotel, like that's the training. You know, I only got a taste of it. People stay there for nine months. I was only there for for a total of one month, but it's still really pushed me. And, and the thing that's incredible about it is that I think I went with this idea that there are all these hacks and tricks and tips, you know, and I would like learn the skills and skills meant like, you know, very particular skills. And there certainly is that, but it's really much more about that experience of like, oh my God, I can't believe I went the wrong way again. And I'm banging my cane against this goddamn trash can again. And then lo and behold, like I still made it to Braille class on time. You know, and, you know, and, and, and that expands um, to the final test that they give people, which is they drive you around Denver wearing sleep shades, drop you off at an unknown location. You have to make your way all the way back to the center. But after nine months, people know how to do that and they do it safely. And you're only allowed to ask one person one question. So you're not allowed to just like find somebody and say, guide me to a taxi. Right. It's like or you call an Uber. It's uh, you find the bus and you, you make your way, you get on the light rail and then they do it. It's like soloing at one of those wilderness camps. <laughs> it absolutely is. Yeah. And, and it feels like that, too. There's a lot of like camaraderie and joking and like, oh, well, nice knowing you, you know, but but the confidence that it gives uh, the students is is really important. It, and it seems to me that a big theme here of this interview is 
that actually our listeners need to learn some things about how to be with blind and low vision people. Mm. That certain kinds of gestures that they think are helpful are actually condescending Mm -hmm. and intrusive. Yeah. Yeah, it's tricky because blind people, if there's one thing that this book taught me is that their blindness is not a monolith. There are a lot of different ways of being blind, both visually and in terms of what it means. You know, you can have no peripheral vision, uh, but good central vision or vice versa, you know, et cetera. But also just in terms of how, as a blind person, you relate to the world and to independence. And I was hanging out recently with a really accomplished blind person professionally, and I was really struck by how differently they moved through the world than some other blind people I'd been with. And I was sort of struck by how comfortable they were with accepting help and then soliciting help, you know, as opposed to some of the NFB folks I hang out with who are like offended if, you know, try to to offer them anything. So it's hard for me to say like, okay, listener, here is how you treat a blind person, because it's a little bit like saying here is how you treat an American, right? Like there are certainly some like basic core ideas of, of dignity, but like, you know, it's complicated and every person is different. But I think there are certainly some things that are universal. And if I had to boil it down, I would say not assuming helplessness. I think there is just a default perception of the blind person as they probably have no idea where the hell they are. They probably are desperate for help, but somebody has ignored them. And your your intervention is welcome and necessary. I think you need to curb that assumption and instead say, maybe this person's lost, let me ask. And if they say they're okay, then believe them because it's sort of baffling to me. But often this perception of blind people is so durable that somebody will say, oh, actually, no, I'm good. And then it's like, well, no, you're not. Let me, come on, like, let, let me, are you sure? Let me, so yeah, I think, I think the most important idea is if you see a blind person and you want to help them, don't assume helplessness. You can offer it because, like, sure, it might be somebody who's like been stuck in this bus stop and they're confused and they're lost, and you're going to save their day. But you also could ruin their day. Yeah, and I think it speaks to the kind of egocentrism. This is how I would feel if yes. I were standing on a street corner, and this is what I would want. Right. Andrew, there's so much about this book we could be talking about, and I really have to urge my listeners to go and read it because it will teach you so much about the world that you live in, Mm. including a world that has been subtly redesigned by disabled people, Mm. things that people might not even notice, like lowered sidewalks Mm -hmm. and so on. And there's a lot in your book about universal design. But why should our listeners read this book now? Mm. Thank you for saying all that. Um, Why should listeners read this book now? Um, I do think that culturally disability is having something of a moment. And there is, I don't know if if it's too much to call it an inflection point, but, you know, I think there's been a lot of conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion around race and gender, sexuality. You know, within the academy, disability studies has been around since the 90s. But, you know, I think it's still finding a sort of larger cultural consciousness, but I do think that 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 moment is arriving. And so I feel like I published this book at a very lucky moment, but all, you know, I feel it's lucky, but also I think I I wrote it intentionally not to capitalize on that, but like I wrote the book very much immersing myself in this cultural moment. So I think it offers not just a view into blindness or into these ideas that are very specific to my memoir, you know, and there's like the whole personal story that is hopefully engaging and, and gives you a sort of a, 
less dry entree into it. But I also tried to be really expansive and think about sort of this, you know, there's a chapter called The Male Gaze that's very much about my experience of masculinity and thinking about everything from like how my relationship with my wife changes as a blind or disabled person, but also like looking at people's ideas about sexuality and vision and like like sexual misconduct in the blindness community. So I tried to be really, you know, forgive the highly visual metaphor, like, you know, uh, panoptical or synoptic about just going all around the world of blindness, but also like sort of cultural debates that everyone is having and thinking about how disability intersects with them. it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Why Now on your favorite podcast platform. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes, to listen to more episodes, or to leave a comment. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. Share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. And follow me on Twitter at Tenured Radical, that's capital T, capital R, or at my website, clairepotter.com. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. That's all for now. See you next time. Bye.